Hello everyone, welcome back to the Stompcast. Uh, Susanna and I are just meandering through the beautiful uh, woods here. We've just basically walked from a really, really kind of thick forest area to a pathway now and it's it's lovely. We're in between trees on your right, trees on your left, ahead of us. So like, it's almost something like the Lord of the Rings, but we don't have orcs running at us, hopefully. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of, it feels like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Really, really kind of magical. So true. I can be pretty sure in saying that there are a few stompers amongst us who are wearing shoes that don't stay comfortable for their whole walk. If that's you, listen up, because this week's episode of the Stompcast is sponsored by Fitflop. Fitflop is on a mission to empower us to move better and feel great. And to do so, they've designed all of their shoes to be lightweight and made with our bodies in mind. So say goodbye to your clunky old pair and hello to Fitflop's range of biomechanically tested dream shoes. Try and say that one in a rush. When I first wore my Vitamin FFs, I immediately noticed the cloud-like cushioning. They're really, really soft and honestly so comfortable. It really feels like you're walking on air thanks to the contoured footbeds. Like all the collection, these stayed so supportive and comfortable the entire time I wore them. This is due to the biomechanical engineering testing that all Fitflops go through. No matter who I'm stomping with or where we're walking, the one thing I always know that I need is going to be comfortable shoes that whole time. I mean, I can go even longer on my stomps. Make sure to head to fitflop.com to choose your new stomp-friendly footwear, available for all genders. Susanna, you've been very open about your experience of growing up with your mother having bipolar disorder. And just want to say before we continue talking, anyone that's worried or anyone that's triggered by what we're talking about, we're going to leave in the show notes some links to advice about where you can get support or just learn a little bit more. Um, effectively, for those listening, bipolar, it's a complex disorder and there's lots of different kinds. So I'm not going to try and encompass everything, but essentially the premise is that people often have extreme highs, which we refer to sometimes as mania, and that can manifest in many different ways. Um, you talked a bit about uh, com compulsions to kind of shop, um, speaking very quickly, almost some people say it's quickly as tongues, um, and then having real lows. And it's very different to you know, one person to the next can experience lots of highs, not many highs, lots of lows, not many, and, and so on. So people's experiences are different, but it can be really challenging to live with. Yeah. Um, but importantly to say, there are treatments out there. I've actually got a good friend and a consultant of mine, mine at Lewisham Hospital, who is a kick-ass consultant really? who lives with bipolar disorder. So taking your number after this, by the way. <laughs> She's yeah. She is absolutely fantastic. And she is honestly one of the best doctors I've ever worked with and, you know, lives with this. And that's not to diminish and say, do you know what? You have to go out there and, you know, prove a point and you have to, if you're not like ultra successful consultant, that's anything to look down upon. But I just don't want people to feel that if you do receive that diagnosis, that that means that you cannot achieve amazing things, yeah. whatever that means. Amazing things could be going outside your front door, yeah. gardening. It could be, you know, running a marathon. It could be walking a mile. It doesn't yeah. matter. Okay. So Susanna, what was it like? in the house growing up you know you said 15 was when you're kind of first aware yeah i mean we were really lucky um to have i mean you know i grew up in you know i own it i i had a very privileged upbringing in terms of you know we were financially stable we traveled and we had this amazing woman um called mrs a who's like our housekeeper so we grew up in, I grew up in Lincolnshire most of the time and she was there and she was like, basically she was my surrogate mum 
and I, she dad died sadly last year and I, I think if she wasn't, if she hadn't been there, I would be a completely different person today. So Mrs. A was the rock. My father for the whole time was in complete denial about it. Um, my sister, she just got very angry and I was confused um, and always clinging on to the times she was normal and waiting for that, expecting that, hoping for that every day. So it wasn't eggshelly particularly. And I think maybe because my father was in denial, it didn't help my mother. But I think that was his way of dealing it because he, he couldn't cope because he, you know, my mum was very, very beautiful. And she, you know, my father was a, he collected beautiful things. You know, he was a, he had an amazing eye and she was probably his greatest acquisition. Um, and I think he saw her a bit like that. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure they loved each other, but it became a very bizarre relationship. And I think, he, they, you know, he became and by association, her more and more isolated, mm. not only from friends, but also his family and her family. So I never really understood the value of family until I married my husband, Steen, who comes from an incredible family. I always thought family was something to be avoided and to get away from, although I'm very close to my sister. Um, and thank God. So when I married Steen, I think I, you know, I was attracted to him, not just because he just because he's an amazing person, fucking good looking, sexy as shit, girls. I'm sorry he's not here for you. And, but I also married his family. You know, that was one of the things that I just loved. They, there was such, his dad sadly dead too, but he was Danish and he, you know, family was everything to him. And I used to get annoyed about that. It's like, oh, for God's sake, you're always with your fucking family. But then I grew to appreciate it. And, you made um, me laugh. It was, you know, so I learn. I've, you know, I'm still learning, um, and you know, I understand that both my parents did the best they could with the emotional tools they had. Mm. I'd like to ask how your mother was treated by medical professionals, yeah. and also how she might have been received by people outside of that profession, yeah. friends and family, because. I think it's fair to say that I think disorders, um, mental health disorders that are around the spectrum or on the spectrum of um, psychosis, around bipolar and mania, uh, these cluster, I guess, of diagnoses probably carry the most stigma, mm, I think. Absolutely. Um, and I, 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 we really are still, I think, playing catch up on yeah. breaking down some of those myths. What, what, what was it like at that time? Well, it's funny, you know, I really thought about it when I was writing my book and I really sat and, you know, you, so we, we, we learn to compartmentalize and reduce things that have happened to us into a kind of throwaway mm. line or throwaway sentence. Mm. So a lot of things, oh, my mum was ill or she was this or she was that. So I really had to think about it. And, and then I was like, you know, I was very influenced by books growing up, I read a huge amount, you know, from a very young age. And the books that I loved the most were the kind of gothic novels. So mm. Jane Eyre, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, Wuthering Heights. Mm. 
Fantastic. Book. And that's what that's what my mum's life. If she'd been born 25 years early, only 25 years earlier, she would have been like Bertha Mason, mm. um, and in Jane Eyre and locked away in the. So attic. yeah, I mean, just just hidden away from society. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget, and you know, we, it is embedded, unfortunately, vocabulary and. You know, I think everyone has said it. I've, I've said, I've said it, and I've said it in the hospital. I certainly try my best, given what I've been through, not to. But the word committed suicide, you commit a crime, mm. you commit murder, you commit. That's and, so and, true. And, and, but it's not I'm a crime. That, yeah. And it was actually abolished as a crime, I believe, in the late 60s. Yeah. And yet it's so embedded in vocabulary so from true. young to old. So and in, in medical, the number of people I've heard in a hospital who work in a mental health mm. professional, as a mental health professional, use the word. Mm. Um, and I, I get why, and I don't judge those people at all, but it just shows how deep-rooted that stigma mm. has been. It really is. So, you know, in terms of treatment, my mum, she never once saw a psychiatrist or a therapist. Mm. It was just lithium, you know, throw pills at her. It's like let's take the mm. shortcut. It's like let's mm. let's put a plaster on it so that she's okay. Mm. Um, there was never she never ever had any long-term therapy. So she mm. was given pills until the next time she tried to commit suicide, mm. and then she'd be committed mm. again. Another mm. fucking terrible term. Mm. You're committed. Mm. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah. And so yeah, and, and today, which is, you know, I have such a fear of. Because you know, genetically bipolar, it is a genetic mm -hmm. disorder. It can, it can be. It can be. Yeah, it can be. And I, you know, I fear for my kids. I look at them and I think, oh God, please, dear God. And one of them has, um, she's got ADHD, mm. and and that can. Uh, they can be links. Yeah, and they can be quite similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, know, they, the, can, they the, can. How they turn on, I just... Up you know, to 5 10% of the population yeah. has uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Yeah, and 60% of women in prisons have ADHD. I, I mean, and if you actually look, and, and I've said it before and again, if you look at how we, we deal with badly behaved children, if you actually stopped and, and looked at what's going on, why are those children behaving badly, you'll very often find a good reason why. Yeah. Whether that's ADHD, whether it's other forms of neurodiversity, whether it struggles at home, yeah. often, the, surprise, surprise, people behave a certain way because of the environment they're in or the things that have happened to them yeah. in the past. Yeah, so, so much of it is kind of stop trying to bury things down, let's yeah. look at why it's happening. But it, yeah. is, it, it, and it is important to say, you mentioned lithium, so lithium for those listening, it's a mood stabiliser, so it helps basically try and take, prevent the extremes of high and low to mm. a degree. And it can be helpful for a lot of people, and some people say it's, it's changed their lives. However, and as you said, it really, it's, and I've said this again and again with Post Your Pill, the campaign I started yeah. around medication, it is one part of the piece of the jigsaw. Yeah. You can't hold up that piece of the jigsaw and say, I'm going to have a full picture holding one piece, you're yeah. not. Yeah. As you said, Talking therapy, support elsewhere, nature therapy, music, creativity, yeah. expression, all the other kind of things that come together. What it's you the eat, your again, sleep, isn't it? Heavy, what you hear, what you senses. eat, your sleep, and what you yeah. see all come together. The pill is one part. And I think in the past, I, I suspect a lot of those mood disorders, let's give a pill. Yeah, totally. And hope it goes quiet. Yeah. I think that approach has hugely changed. Yeah. And I'm really proud to see that. I do think the stigma around those things are still there. I think there's a real stigma. And people still say things like, oh, um, that person's bipolar. That person has bipolar disorder. Mm. They're not, di you don't die, that, that per I mean, we do say it casually, things like that person's di diabetic, but really we should say that person has diabetes, not defined by yeah. their illness. Yep. 
you know, I have anxiety. It doesn't mean that my entire existence, everything that Alex is, is anxiety. Yeah. It's just part of my life. Yeah. It's like sort of when you, you know, tell a child off, it's like you're so, you know, you are, you're so naughty. Mm. It's like you, you're naughty because you did this. It's not like, it's the same thing. It's like you're, it's, you're absolutely right. But I think it has changed and it's, you know, it's a tes testament to people like you, Alex, you know, and just talking to you, I feel so um, relieved and kind of encouraged mm. that. Optimistic? Yeah, and optimistic. Kind of you. <laughs> no, but I really do. Um, it's, and especially I feel someone of your, and seeing people talking your age, is, it, I think it's so vital what you're doing. And, you know, I have a very dear friend of mine whose son committed suicide when he was 21, committed suicide. Yeah, nobody shows how killed himself. And she started up an amazing charity called um, James's Place. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm which, aware of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God's sake. And you can just walk in, you get nine sessions free with a brilliant therapist. Mm. And it's beautifully done. It's not like some horrible place where you walk in and feel like a criminal. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, we need so much more of that. And now more than anything, because there's nothing for... For young people, and I'm sorry for our young people listening, and this is going to scare them, but it's like the the kind of when in your late childhood, so let's say from 13 to 19, there's nothing. You know, as a child, you can go and see a pediatric mm. therapist, whatever you call it, and then you go into the adult system. But there's that there's that gap where you don't fit into either category. Well, do you know what? I, I could almost pay you right now, and I shall have to pay you after, because okay. that, that is exactly the reason that we want the government to fund early support hubs. Susanna, your, your book, your memoir, if that's okay. Yes, I, I guess so, yeah. I, I feel it's a memoir, and the reason I say that is because you ha have done so much in your life. You've lived many different lives in one body, if yeah. that's okay for me to say. Um, the title of the book is Ready for Absolutely Nothing, which I think is quite ironic because I feel that you've kind of done everything, mm. dealt with everything, the highs and the lows. So why did you call it that? Um, well, it started out, I was going to call it Girl at the Back of the Room because my life has been like Forrest Gump's. And as you say, I have you kept met some amazing people, witnessed some incredible things, but always from you know quietly from the back and um but so that's what it was going to be called and then when i finished it i realized that yes i grew up in privilege but i was brought up with only one expectation from my father in particular and that was to get married and that was it so i could have gone to university um, which is a miracle considering the shit school I went to. Um, and my dad said to me, I'll never forget it, he said, darling, you know, that's, that's lovely, but you'd be far better off learning how to make a good beef wellington oh. than going to university. Oh. And that summed up my yeah. upbringing. So I realised I didn't mm. have my own opinion until I was about 23 on anything. I hadn't, didn't go to a supermarket until I was about 22. I'd, I was totally unprepared for life. Um, yes, I'd learned a lot 
emotionally, I'd been through a lot emotionally, but in terms of, you know, practical living, I knew, you know, I knew nothing. But, um, so that's why it was called Ready for Absolutely Nothing, because I really was ready for absolutely <laughs> sweet fuck all. And then you got chucked into the, into the world. Then I got chucked into the world. And had to deal with everything. And had to deal with everything. And I, don't, I sort of, I don't know how I managed it. I think, again, it was my mum's illness had made me resilient and accepting of people and situations. And, you know, again, growing up in a privileged sort of upper middle class family, as a child, I'd, you know, we were surrounded a lot by grown-ups and I was incredibly shy but I'd have to sort of force myself to be heard. Um, and so I had that kind of strength to be able to deal with different situations. What was Princess Margaret like? Oh, I fucking love that woman. She, so I started um, going out with her son, Viscount Lindley as he was then, but to me, he was just my boyfriend. And um, obviously, I'd well, heard, yeah, I'd heard about you know Princess Margaret's reputation and everything, but she came into my life at just the right time because my mum's illness had was seriously peaking, and um, I looked at Princess Margaret as a surrogate mum, and she was so strong in so many ways and she taught me the value of being yourself, the value of having an opinion, whatever it was, and having the courage of your convictions and stick with it and not to be swayed by outside opinion. And um, I, she was so funny, highly, highly intelligent, amazingly well-read, loved music, loved her family, loved her sister, the Queen. Um, and yes, you know, I, I saw her waspy side with other people, but I think that was through a lack of trust. And when you're, you know, you live your life open to the public. You're constantly getting stung. You're not so much stung, but you're much more aware. You're much more discerning about who you allow, allow close to you because everyone wanted something from her. And if, if she realised there was nothing you wanted for, from her other than to like her and be in her company, mm. then you gained the trust. And, you know, I was so privileged and lucky to have, not Princess Margaret, but to have had a woman like mm. her mm. in my life. And um, I really loved her. And one of my biggest regrets is when David and I split up was I didn't keep in contact with her because I, I didn't feel it was appropriate. Um, and then David got married and I just felt it wasn't appropriate. Mm. But uh, in looking back, it is actually one of the few regrets I have in my really? life. Yeah. And she was, I mean, this woman was so amazing. So I hadn't seen her for three years. And I got engaged to Steen, my husband, which took a lot of fucking hard work, let me tell you, to get him down the aisle. <laughs> And I literally had to push him, force his hand. And, um, and I got this call from a mutual, from a friend of her saying, Princess Margaret would like to give you, when we got engaged, would like to give you a dinner to celebrate your oh, engagement. Wow. Not a phone call you get very often. Yeah, and so we went, Steve and I went for dinner at Blake's Hotel. 
and there was her, Steen, me, some people called the Weinbergs, a guy called Ned Ryan, and Mario Testino. And, um, and I loved Princess Margaret. He, she put Steen next door to her and out came the naughty wooden spoon and she basically for the whole night um, told Steen how much David and love David and I had been. Oh dear. Um, but oh dear. done with such a twinkle in her <laughs> yeah. eye. And I mean, that, can you think Sounds of like anyone, doesn't matter who you are, any ex kind of mother of a boyfriend <laughs> doing that for you? And she was like, my, still my protector and saying, okay, I'm going to check like, him over. Yeah. I'm going to make sure he's okay. And that was just the most extraordinary thing for, you know, for her to have done. Did you find it kind of surreal, kind of, being, I don't know if it's the way to say it, but in a circle like that, where you're very, you must be very well, well aware that this is, uh, this is literally the Queen's uh, younger sister. Yeah. That's, it's, it must be, even after time, it's been an odd dynamic to get used to, but like, it's, a, it's kind of weird, Alex. I, I, to me, she was just David's mum, and I know that, I know that That's such an odd thing to hear. Ridiculous. <laughs> ridic it is ridiculous to hear. But, I think also at that time we didn't have social media. There wasn't, you know, news didn't filter out within a matter of seconds. It was a much gentler time. And um, I'd never really sort of been interested in the royal family mm. before I met David. So it wasn't, you know, wow. I'd far rather have kind of hung out with the Rolling Stones than... <laughs> Meet the Queen. Um, was Princess, Princess Margaret so different to the Rolling Stones? She loved a party. She was quite she? rock and roll, and she. Yeah, would... I love that about her. She was rock. She was Fucking rock and roll, and she? she would have a dinner, and she'd be. What she'd... was the parties like? What was a party? Well, they were always quite small, and she was just herself, and she loved it. And then after dinner, she'd get her little turn turntable out with a kind of plastic speaker and put on a red she would always be dj she would have to DJ be dj and then she'd that. dance around with her cigarette holder and her fag and a glass of whiskey and and we'd just dance and laugh and it was so you know genuinely it was so relaxed is the crown a fair representation have you watched the crown i have and i loved it i loved it really loved it yeah. but I mean, some things I, get, I do get quite, you know, I did get quite mm. angry about. And I think mm. the way Princess Margaret was portrayed, I felt angry. Well, they amped up a lot of narratives was, that were in the yeah, press. It, so they it, let's give that an It was amping. just one side of her personality that was portrayed. Because it did feel like, I mean, I, I, I really, I, I, so I love the royal family. And I, I, I'd like to think I've watched a lot of the... The, the documentaries, I've read a lot about them, I, yeah. of, I really love them, and I feel like, from what I've feared about Princess Margaret, that was a very small segment they showed, compared to a lot of the stuff she did. I mean, she did a lot for, for other people, didn't she? So much. And I don't think that it was really shown, like, the Queen is amazing at all the things she's doing, yeah. but it kind, they kind of made out that she was this kind of party-going wild sister that yeah. didn't really care about anything else. And she, she was so, you know, she could sense, she had such a instinct she was incredibly empathetic so mm. it's like when my parents met it was almost, i was like vomited all over the dining table dining room table because i was so nervous Gosh, and my mum a moment my mum was like on meet the such... parents and yet the parent is a princess like oh i've my never God. told that story by the way oh. and i remember my mum was on a, such a high my father was like trying to be nonchalant but he had really bad hemorrhoids at the time so he left a huge patch of blood on one of the sofas oh lovely 
And, Fantastic, exactly. Um, that's, a, that's a parting gift. And my mum was literally, every time Princess Margaret looked at her, she'd curtsy. So she was like this the whole time. We were like kicking under the table, like you can do it once and that's it. And I was so mortified, but Princess Margaret was amazing. She totally disregarded that. She was so respectful to my mother, treated her, you know, not as someone who was ill, but she just had that sense of, mm. of how to behave with my mum. Mm. And I loved her for that. And I hadn't seen my mum being treated like that by other people ever, I don't think. The Queen, uh, well, the late Queen Elizabeth spoke mm. very fondly uh, about Margaret and their relationship. They're very different people. Yeah. But were like the same, the different sides of the same coin. Yeah. Is that like, is that what kind of how you saw Yeah, it? I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't come across the Queen nearly as much as the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret, but there was one time when we went up to Balmoral. So this is an extraordinary anecdote that reveals an ordinary truth, which the book is a lot, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of how I've dealt with things. And um, Margaret Thatcher was um, Prime Minister at the time, and uh, she was a role model for me. And um, not because of her policies or anything, because I wasn't really interested in that, but just because she was a woman who had got the highest position in the country after the Queen. You know, she'd fought her way to do that. Yeah. And you looked, anyway, that's the side. So anyway, she was there. And I remember we were by, we were at a fishing lodge. So you, you could go fishing or you could do, go for a ride or run, whatever. And, we were by the fishing, by the river, and it was tea time. And Margaret Thatcher and the Queen were in the fishing hut with a couple of other people. And the Queen picked up this huge tea, brown Betty teapot. She said, Susanna, would you like a cup of tea? And I went, yes, ma'am, that'd be lovely. She picked up this teapot and I held out my saucer and cup. And the Thatcher went over to take the teapot out of her hands, okay? And I think, you know, being polite and... Um, being served a cup of tea by the Queen, but yeah. And the Queen very quietly pulled back. Thatcher tried again. The Queen pulled back. Thatcher tried again. And you'll have to find out, read the book to find out who won that little tussle. But what was so fantastic and, and ordinary, forget who the people were, it was like, there were t the two most powerful, yes, women yeah. in the world at the time, yeah. fighting over who was going to play pour, mother. Who's, who's going to pour you a cup yeah, of tea? Yeah, no, who was going to play mother? <laughs> you know, when you're in your home, I know that if I That's have people amazing, for tea, I want to make the cup no, of tea because this is my home and your mum's probably the same. ordinary thing to do. Yeah. It's an ordinary thing to do by people that we see as extremely, and they are yeah. extraordinary people. What a moment. I, did you walk away from that being like... You know what? That's, what have I just witnessed? <laughs> but also, that's another thing that I learned from my mum and being quite isolated as a child. I was incredibly observant, which is why I think I love writing. I've got all these amazing mushrooms, by the way. They're huge. Yeah, there's some massive ones here. These are proper farm, farmhouse mushroom yeah. type things, aren't they? But um, I think I was an observer. I was a watcher. So I was always watching over my mother. So no one else noticed this. And I remember thinking, I can't wait to go and tell David about this incident. Um, so, yeah, that was an amazing moment. 
Um, and it was funny because Thatcher was so, as was documented quite accurately in The Crown, was so ill at ease. But I think it wasn't because she was in the presence of the Queen. It's more because she was redundant. She didn't have a role. So if she was at mm -hmm. home, she put on her marigolds and yeah, do the washing sure. up or do the cooking. Or if she was a prime minister, she'd be doing, you know, question time. And there she had nothing to do. And so she was completely, it's like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? I've got to do something, you mm. know. I can't, I can't quite beat that story, but I, when I, when I um, went into town Downing Street to see the Prime Minister... I to love be that asked, photo of you and <laughs> Boris, <laughs> by the way. Uh, when, uh, when I, was, when I went, was, basically went in to meet the Prime Minister um, uh, and formally accept the role, we actually went to Just Margaret Thatcher's... Respect, by the way. Thank Just you. Such respect, you. yeah. We went to Margaret Thatcher's room first. So the photos actually in the kind oh of reception. God, we were in I'm Margaret so Thatcher's room. And it was incredible because I walked in and I quickly dawned on me about where we were because I kind of, I love reading about government. I think number 10's a fascinating place yeah. in itself. Uh, and I could see on the wall, big painting of Margaret Thatcher looking down at her desk. And famously, she used to spend nearly 24 hours a day in that room, tiny room. It's one of the smallest rooms actually in 10 Downing Street. And, and she wouldn't even leave. The reason she chose that room, she had a toilet directly in the room. So she'd go between the toilet and a desk constantly and they'd bring her food. But I sat there with the Prime Minister of the country opposite me and behind no. him the picture of Margaret Thatcher and him. And I was like, I'm a Wel little Welsh boy from Carmarthen from ultra normal background. I was like, what? And that was the, there's a few moments in my life and I, I, I kind of listening to what you're saying where it was like a pinch me moment. I was yeah. like, what, what am I doing here? Yeah, so you what had... Am I, what am I doing here? Did you have, what's it called, imposter syndrome? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think, we'd, do we not all have imposter yeah, syndrome oh, at times? Yeah, totally. But that's that an entirely normal thing, but yeah, it was extraordinary. That was my extraordinary yeah, moment. that is like an extraordinary real, moment. So, that, so in, in your book, yes. you go very much between highs and lows. Yeah. You know, night and day. For, for readers who come away and they've, they've laughed, they've cried and done everything in between, what are the key things that you hope that people will take away? I, I mean, is it around I like, accepting life, preparing for things, or is it kind I of going... I think that's it's such a good question. And I think what I hope people to take away is that the, the greatest thing, okay, I hope people think, think it's well written, they think it's funny, but most importantly, I hope they feel it's relatable, despite, you know, growing up and, you know, the way I did and with the aristocracy and the royals and rock and roll and all of that. I really hope that it's relatable to people because, you know, the opening line of my book was the fact that I've been screwing Dolph Lundgren. And then 10 years later, I mean, that in itself is hilarious. <laughs> Dolph, do you know who he is? No, but I just love. He was in the Rocky it, so. film. He was the blonde one in Rocky. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, Real yes, yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. ridiculous beefcake. And um, but then you know I see him ten years later, and he doesn't even know who the hell I am. We'd been to Corsa together. We'd done all these things. Didn't Eve even know? So that was like, we've all been girls. You've probably been in this situation where you've given some a blow, someone a blowjob, and then they don't recognise who the fuck you are. <laughs> So we can all relate to that moment. It, for me, it just happened to be with Dolph Lundgren. Do you know what I mean? Where do you even go with that? 
Well, I think, I, I, you know, since since meeting you, I mean, we, we did it in the very modern way of Zooming because that's yeah. the scenario we're in. Um, but the thing I take away from you as a person is that you are amongst everything else that you've done. And actually, people listen and go, oh my gosh, like she's telling all these stories of you actually... You're very but um, Trini and down I, to earth. but going to for you know mm. what I discovered is that so people know me from Trini and Susanna and being on the telly and you know Trin and I kind of spent most of our adult life on television, but what I discovered and I was going to write about that but then I discovered that was actually the least interesting part of my life. Well, so I, I, having having grown up in the era where that was. Very much prime of its uh, on, on prime on TV. Yeah. Um, I can say I, I actually agree. If you don't yeah. mind me saying that, um, yeah, and I really no, take totally. away from meeting you is that you have experienced so much of life, but you're a very normal person. Whatever normal means, and I don't really yeah. know what that means. You are kind of we are we're all more similar than people realise. Absolutely. We have and the I... same similar troubles, yeah. similar worries, uh, and you know similar things that we care about. When it comes down to it, I think genuinely most people care about health and happy health yeah. happiness and their family like that is yeah. a core and amongst families whether it's the queen or whether it's anyone yeah. else living you know anywhere else in the country we have similar troubles yeah and i hope you know now is like you were saying in the previous section um that you know it's it's not an easy time at the moment there's so much turmoil in the world and i just hope that this is gives people a bit of light relief a bit of oh thank god she's like me um a bit of not well a lot of nostalgia and a little testimony to a time which certainly now the queen has passed is never going to happen again again a huge thank you to fitflop who sponsored this week's episode we've got to the end of our stomp today and as always my feet are happy because i've been supported by my vitamin ff trainers Make sure to head to fitflop.com to choose stomping shoes you know you can count on. As we come to the end of part two, I shall say thank you so much for writing the book. I know people are going to really enjoy it, but make sure before you start reading, you've got part three to listen to first, then you're allowed to go and order and read the book. Um, so thank you so much to everyone that's been stomping away. I hope you're doing well. I'm getting out of breath as we get to the top of this lovely, nice incline. You've done incredible. I'll see you in part three, whether that's right now and straight away, or whether it's tomorrow. Good work. Thank you.